1: The rigs pointed skywards out of the surrounding sands like some alien structure from another planet. Nothing else of human construction stood in the mighty expanse of desert. The sand stretched away uninterrupted to the horizon. Apart from the drilling team, the only human activity in the vast area came from the Bakhtiari tribesmen who sat at a distance on their camels watching the strange activity that had invaded their land. The tribesmen had received nothing, but the arrival of the drilling team had disturbed their life. They were not in the least content to have these strangers in their midst doing whatever they wished. The camels were motionless until, upon some unheard command, they turned their heads and camels and riders vanished into the foothills behind. George Reynolds leaned against the ladder at the foot of the drilling rig, slowly dragging on his cigarette and listening to the steady thump-thump of the engine driving the rig bit inch by painful inch to its designated depth. He could feel the rig gently vibrating. Maybe one more day would do it. He didn't really think they would find anything at this late stage in the drilling program. The whole fiasco had been going on for nearly two years, with nothing to show for it. But orders were orders.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Paul Ashford Harris to talk about his new book, Love, Oil, and the Fortunes of War. Paul Ashford Harris, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. The story begins with the death of Queen Victoria in 1901. An end of empire event, you call it. A new country and a new era emerged, as you write. What was Britain leaving behind and where
1: was it heading as a nation into the future? Around that point, Britain was without doubt the most powerful country in the world. They had the largest navy, 442 ships, I think. And and currently they have 72, so that gives you an idea. Um, So they were very confident of their empire and um, they had a sort of arrogance about them, which allowed them to walk into wherever they wanted to and run things the way they wanted to run them. It only started to disturb them when the Germans started to uh, rattle the sword of it, and that was Kaiser Bill, really. I've got to say... (laughs) It's a broad statement, but this, the way World War One broke out and it was never resolved it was just tragic. And if not for a lot of other reasons, because basically the British royal family were German, really, and they were all related to each other. If you look at the Victoria's children, they all married European and German princesses, etc. It should have been possible to to bring the war to a halt, really. And at the end of the day, when the, finally the whole thing was over. Nobody had achieved anything except literally millions of dead dead bodies. So, um, yeah, that was was an era-changing event, of course, and for the French as well, which I haven't really talked about much, but the French suffered just as badly as anybody else or worse in some ways. From our point of view, one of the great mistakes of history,
0: I guess. But bound up in history, of course, is resources, commodities,
1: oil in particular.
0: What was the state of oil exploration around this period?
1: The Burma Oil Company was actually in Malaya or Malaysia as it is now, and it was doing kerosene more than oil. Informed people, realised there was likely to be oil in Persia, significant amounts. Um, and there was quite a lot of concern by the British that the Russians would get their hands on it. Um, so there was an incentive there for the British to try and stop that, particularly as, say, the Middle East was, or Mesopotamia, was sort of on the, tra- on the route to India. And India was probably the most... Um, important possession as far as the British were concerned. So, um, yeah, they took a pretty keen interest in what was happening in Persia as it was then.
0: And to what degree did Britain rely on oil to fuel its economy and to maintain
1: the reach of its empire at that time? Well, hardly at all, actually. I mean, the thing with with Britain or England was that it had abundant amounts of coal in Wales. So they used coal, very convenient, easy to move around. And for Fisher to come along and suddenly say, I'm going to turn the whole Navy over to oil, and by the way, we haven't got any, (laughs) was, was, uh, let's say, controversial, I think would be a fair word. But there was no doubt that the more informed in the Navy and elsewhere for that matter knew that to supply the engines for the fleet, to make the ships work better, Oil was, had advantages that were impossible to deny. So the issue then became, we can't switch the Navy unless we have oil. And uh, where are we going to get it from? They didn't trust, quite rightly, they didn't trust Standard Oil. What we call ESO now, Standard Oil. Um, and at the time that, it, uh, that this was all happening, they were being broken up in the United States under the antitrust laws into, over, I think, over 30 companies. So they had their hands full in the U.S. And they also had massive amount of demand for oil in the U.S. They didn't really need other markets. I hadn't really taken much notice of of the Middle East. And um, if you read uh, the book about T.E. Lawrence and about what happened in the uh, Middle East, the Americans really didn't understand it and weren't interested at all. So suddenly this this gusher came along and... uh, you know, it was a gotcha moment, really. I mean, uh, suddenly there was this oil in vast quantities too, not not just some, you know, minor find. So it was a, a significant event.
0: Let's talk for a moment about the fellow that you mentioned before, Fisher, Jackie Fisher, the first sea lord of the British Navy, a significant figure by all accounts, a father of the oil industry in many ways. What is his part
1: in this story and, and what is his legacy? He was an astonishing a man in, in many ways, born into a very um, difficult situation in Salon, as Sri Anka was called then, shipped out by his parents to be brought up by his grandparents who had no money in England. But luckily for him, his godmother was a very well-connected, aristocratic lady, in, and she took him under her wing. But he was not part of the British establishment. He was short. He was dusky. So they all thought, you know, we were asking questions about his background. There was actually malaria and things like that. But, but the thing about Fisher was he was extremely bright, very bright. Popped the Navy and navigation and he revolutionized gunnery. And um, on top of which, he was extremely energetic as well. So he didn't, he just would not sit down and, you know, let things unfold around him. So he was a very unusual figure to find in the Navy at that point. But his ability just eventually couldn't be ignored. And uh, he could be very charming when he wanted to. And so he knew how to work the room. and He worked the politicians and the press. And uh, in spite of a lot of opposition, in the end, once the oil arrived, he had the answer to the the critics in the Navy because now they had it. It wasn't too far away. They could ship it. So at that point, the Dreadnoughts were were being built. So he had had designed, more or less designed, or been responsible for the the design of the Dreadnoughts, which were a completely new type of battleship, Um, faster, much bigger guns. And I think they built 18 of them, and they had six more on order by the time the the war broke out in 1914. And, of course, Dreadnought was um, his family motto, fear God and Dreadnought. So, uh, but the other thing about him was, I mean, he was a really entertaining character because he loved ballroom and dancing, can you believe? And he also had this obsession about the Old Testament. He had his uh, oddities, if you like. He was a remarkable man, and uh, he happened to be at the right place at the right time. You could say that the Navy probably wasn't decisive in terms of the outcome of World War I, but um, if they had had the old ships, they would have been a lot more vulnerable. Uh, and they wouldn't also, they eventually blockaded the Germans and uh, that really was naval power.
0: Now, Jackie Fisher is just one of a trio of major figures in your story.
1: The next one is William Darcy. What was his role in this history? He was just a tough, no-nonsense businessman who did whatever he did to make money. Um, There's no record of him ever spending large amounts of his money on any sort of charity or whatever. Um, he spent it on resources. And the funny thing about it is that Mount Morgan, of course, his partner in there, um, was Walter and Eliza Hall. And that while the Walter and Eliza Hall charity that still exists and does some terrific work today is the other beneficiary of the Mount Morgan mine. So um, Darcy went one way and Walter Hall went the other. And, uh, yep, You know, just different types of people and different drivers.
0: Darcy's credited with connecting Europe to the Middle East, may have even been responsible for the term, the Middle East. What was the Middle East to Britain before William Darcy?
1: Well, it was really run by the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, and the French had interests there in basically Lebanon these days. So the, the major European countries had their interests in uh, in the Middle East, but the Ottoman Turks fundamentally ran it. Of course, you, you had Jerusalem and you had the whole Christianity, the centre of Christianity there as well. So that was a, that was an important point for the Christian nations, if you like. But it never became as important as it did when suddenly it was the source of our oil. So, you know, that changed the world. And world War I, of course, changed it as well. And uh, you can see the whole thing play out to eventually... 1956, Eden and the Americas refused to back England and France at the Suez Crisis, and they were out, basically. So the whole journey had taken 50-odd years.
0: The third character, and here's where love comes in, but not just love, love and archaeology, in fact, Gertrude Bell, a fascinating character, a heroine in many ways, a well-educated and multilingual scholar from a wealthy family. Who was Gertrude Bell, and why is she so important to this story?
1: Gertrude Bell is a remarkable woman, even these days, that, that, that follows the whole women's movement, who sort of doesn't understand somebody like Gertrude Bell would probably enjoy having a look at her history. And there's a wonderful book available on it, very detailed. And again, like Fisher, she had the um, incredible benefit of being incredibly bright. Um, I think i mentioned that she was the first woman to get a first-class degree in modern history at Oxford and um, she did it in two years. But the other thing about her was she was just a remarkable linguist. And so she learned Arabic, she learned a number of different languages. And I think that was a huge advantage because there's no doubt that roaming around the Middle East, running around Mesopotamia as it was called then, um, as a woman on a camel, she was at extreme risk, there's no doubt about that. But um, not sympathetic to the oil industry, more concerned about the history and preserving history, Babylon, et cetera. Smart enough to realise that someone was going to exploit the oil and it was better to be involved in that process than watch some other country do it. I mean, the Russians or the Germans quite likely to be worse. The Germans are very involved in the area, so anything could have happened there. So, yeah, she's an amazing lady. And her mountaineering an is just a sort of side issue in a way, but still, when you read it, you realise the... Um, Incredible self control and bravery that she had. They were, people were just amazed the people at Mountaineers who went with her and they had this really shocking experience in the Austrian Alps. And, uh, But she didn't bat an eyelid. So, a very unusual lady. Now, I've confected a bit of the connection there because um, we, we don't really know what happened, but it's very unlikely that she didn't become involved because of the close connection with Fisher through the family but also um, she got involved in the suffragette movement. And it was interesting. She and Emily Pankhurst didn't agree at all. The basic reason, I think, was that the women in the suffragette movement in the UK, including my grandmother, who was a friend of Emily Pankhurst, were upper-class English women, well-educated, demanding a say in the way the country was run. And Gertrude Brell's mother and father ran this family business up in the north of England, near Manchester. And they were confronted with it hideous poverty in the area. I mean, I think it's hard to, to sort of realise just how poor it was. And the women there were concerned about where's the food going to come from tomorrow and how can I stop my husband coming home drunk and belting me? So in their family business, they looked after the women that worked for them pretty well given the conditions. And so I think Gertrude had a influence by a mother had had a mission really to improve the lot of working women. And voting or not was a sort of side issue, as far as she was concerned. So I've confected this. Most of the book is is true, but you know I've had some fun and I've confected things, and you know that's because you don't really know what happened. It's just too difficult. You can't. You don't know what meetings happened or what conversations. So I confected a meeting between Gertrude Bell and Emily Pankhurst, which was a bit of fun.
0: It makes a good story, and uh, it just makes me think about when you're creating that story when you're filling those gaps in history and imagining those gaps you start with the history and you start with the facts and the research uh, but at what point does your imagination take over
1: well it takes over quite a lot i'm not a historian in the sense that i'm not obsessed about very detailed facts i'm interested in the people and how they might have been to react yeah i've had a bit of fun with that and and uh, look you know i think anyone who's is really a dedicated historian Needs used to go and read the history, and, but when, when you go back that far, it's quite difficult to actually um, really get down to the nuts and bolts because the records are sort of not that easily assessed.
0: Were you always interested in exploring the, the human drama behind the scenes, if you like, and, and, of course, at the same time, the political drama?
1: Yeah, look, I think so. I think it was one of those things where it just got sort of more and more interesting for me as I went on. Uh, I've got a bad habit, which you probably have observed, that um, I would find sort of rabbit holes about various things and I'd, I'd go off down the rabbit hole and might not have a huge amount to do directly with the story that was coming out, but still I thought it was really interesting. So the stuff about Edward VII and you know, the Curra Wrens, the girls in Ireland and all that sort of stuff, yeah, I pursued some of those stories and was self-indulgent enough to put them in the book. Even though maybe somebody say, "Well, what'd you put that in for?" Churchill was very friendly with darcy and and fisher and and um, and so was the king. and I think it's hard for Australians to comprehend the power of the British establishment at that point, and uh, which is another reason why the uh, breakthrough that Fisher was able to make was pretty extraordinary really. I mean, you had to have way more talent than somebody who was born into the establishment would have had to have to get to that point that he did. And uh, Darcy, of course, did it with money, which is what we're used to these days.
0: Do you see Gertrude Bell as the, I guess, the connecting thread between
1: politics, uh, archaeology and the future of Britain? Yeah, well, I think that you know she and T. Lawrence were so similar and, and both of them were... Um, we're completely outside the establishment. And T. Lawrence was totally disillusioned by what happened after the war and felt like he'd been betrayed. Lawrence was, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and I guess um, a lot of the old members of, uh, of us have seen the film. So, you know, um, so he was extraordinary as well. You know, his story um, is, is really compelling. So he and Gertrude were, were classic outsiders yeah you know, bright, very bright, you know, Lawrence was too. and um, so they were sort of made for each other, not in a romantic sense, but in the sense of understanding each other. It's lovely to think of that there was T. e. Lawrence you know fighting his battles, and uh, along comes Gertrude. so they were they were sort of made for each other, but they both had terribly sad endings, and uh, Lawrence was bitterly disappointed by the way things turned out for his friends, Um, and so was Gertrude Bell. So, you know, they felt they'd been portrayed by by the, again, by the establishment in France and England, by politics, and very sad.
0: Do you ever reflect on what course history might have taken in the nation-building sense, had the facts been otherwise, if your characters had never existed?
1: Well, that's a huge question. Where would we be? Um, That's... uh, that's, that's likely to provoke a, an avalanche of outrage. <laughs> where would we be? Um, I guess one thing that there are a couple of things in the book that in the back of my mind a little bit, and I've sneaked them into the book, but there's a phrase in the book where one of the women says, men are God's mistake. I have this sort of suspicion, whatever it is, that male aggression, if it's not controlled, uh, can lead to these hideous events going on. So we're watching Putin at the moment. I mean, the behaviour of some of these guys wouldn't think would be rational in a normal world. So, you know, what would have happened if you'd had a Putin back in 100 years ago? Or they were around, you know, they and sometimes they're controlled and sometimes they're not. And if they're not, they're really dangerous. And I guess, you know, going back to Kaiser Bill, really, you know, I mean, it was an idiotic war. And the fact they kept on fighting it, they just kept on fighting. He disappeared, basically, and left them to it. His cousins, the King of England. Wouldn't you think that somebody would go, wait a minute, what the hell are we doing here? I mean, we would think that, you know, we would think that. I think as normal, you know, people basically, what are we doing? It's, you know, look at the carnage. How about we stop? Yeah. And funny enough, the parallels between you know what happened, what's happening now in the Ukraine and what happened in the Crimean War. Most people know all about that, but you know we're just going around again, sadly. Paul well, Harris,
0: it's been really great to talk to you. It's a very interesting story. And thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Well, it's a pleasure and I really appreciate it.
0: I've been talking to Paul Ashford Harris about his new book, Love, Oil and the Fortunes of War. It's published by Ventura and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.